Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. We'll read verses 15 through 17 again. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. Let's open in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that uh, you have uh, seen fit to give us uh, an account of uh, the first covenant that you established with uh, humanity in the person of Adam. Father, we thank you that these things are not left in the dark, and, and Father, that uh, we can have clarity and knowing your dealings with Adam and how it impacts and affects us today, thousands of years later. We ask as we begin to look at the uh, scriptural basis for uh, the covenant of works, we pray that you'd give us eyes to see, help us to uh, have clarity in our understanding. Father, you would enable us to see the covenantal nature of your relationship with Adam. And Father, that we would see it freshly and uh, deeper than we've seen it before and, and would be able to grab a hold of the practical applications of that and how it it's still impacting us today. Father, we thank you that in light of these things, uh, we can gain a, a deeper understanding of the gospel and of what Christ did for us, the greatness of his work on our behalf. Again, we pray that you bless us and bless this time. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing on in our study of the covenant of works and this morning, we're really entering into the heart of our study. We began two weeks ago by introducing the covenant of redemption, dealing with the doctrines of election, predestination, and reprobation. And then last week, we defined the covenant of works and dealt with various objections. I just want to read some reminders to get our minds back there. Uh, Richard Barcelos, a Reformed Baptist pastor, defines the covenant of works as that divinely sanctioned commitment or relationship God imposed upon Adam, who was a sinless representative of mankind or a public person, an image-bearing son of God conditioned upon his obedience with a penalty for disobedience, all for the bettering of man's estate. We dealt with three objections, as I said, to not just the, the term covenant of works, but the presence and existence of it. Uh, the first that we dealt with was the fact that the word covenant does not appear in this account in Genesis and doesn't appear at all until uh, the time of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Uh, and we demonstrated that the lack of a term doesn't prohibit the presence of the meaning of the term being present in the text. We also uh, dealt with another objection that there's no evidence of a swearing or oath in the account that we read, and yet uh, there are other covenants of Scripture where uh, 
there is no explicit mention in the account in which the covenant is communicated and ratified of an oath, but yet Scripture elsewhere reveals uh, that God didn't indeed swear an oath. We talked about the Davidic covenant being a great example of that. And so just because we don't see all of the parts of a covenant present in that passage, it doesn't mean that it's not a covenant. It doesn't mean that those things didn't happen. Scripture doesn't always aim to be thorough and exhaustive in communicating everything at particular points. And it's helpful to use other scripture, old and new, as an infallible interpreter, giving us a deeper understanding of what actually happened there. And we looked at how uh, did make uh, an oath to uh, both David in that covenant and that in a sense in which God, uh, whenever he promises something in a covenant with man, his promise is an oath based upon his character, uh, just simply uh, as it appears. So again, the presence of uh, an oath or a lack thereof does not mean that it's not a covenant. The third objection that we dealt with was more related to the relationship that Adam had with God. A very common objection in some Reformed Baptist circles today is that God's relationship with Adam was not covenantal, but it was fatherly filial. Uh, and we recognize that it's true that God's relationship with Adam was fatherly. Uh, God being the father and Adam being the son, Luke 3.38, tells us that Adam was the son of God. And yet we recognize that even though there was a filial relationship present, that does not mean that that's the only relationship that was present there. But we believe that there was a covenant that God made with Adam. So those are the objections that we dealt with, and now we move into looking at the scriptural basis for the covenant of works. This is a very important study. I'll get into it in just a second, Mike. Um, it's important because there are many people today that are denying the presence of the covenant of works, uh, denying its continuing binding nature, among the other things that are being denied of it. But fundamentally, if you don't have a covenant of works, consistently tracing that line of thought, you don't have a gospel. If you don't have a covenant of works that continues on, binding all men at all times, um, you don't have a gospel. So this is important. Uh, and we're going to spend some time looking through Genesis 2 uh, and some other passages of Scripture in Romans and Hosea, uh, attempting to demonstrate that very clearly the relationship God had with Adam was covenantal and that it was a covenant of works. Mike? Yes? Yes, um, I, I believe that anytime God makes a promise towards good or a promise towards a curse, there is, there is a great sense in which that is an oath. Uh, it should be understood that way, even though the terminology isn't explicitly present there. We, we have to use the language of an oath because we can break it. Right. We can change what we say and just right. lie. Yeah. But God is perfect and eternal in what he says to do. That's well said, Dusty. I agree. Um, I think fundamentally that the, the difference between uh, God and us is God is always truthful and faithful, and we are chronically 
circumstances. So God, God doesn't necessarily have to explicitly say, I'm swearing this to you as an oath. Anytime he promises something, it's a reflection upon his character and his attributes. And it's as if he's binding himself in that promise uh, and uh, everything related to that. And fundamentally, that is an oath. It is a swearing. Um, and obviously, you can take that too far and say that everything God makes is an oath. And in a sense, yes, but not every promise God's, God makes, and we've talked about this, is covenantal in nature. Not every promise is within a covenant system and a covenant relationship. Promises can reveal other covenants we talked about, and there can be additional promises within a covenant that are not necessarily um, connected to blessing or curse. So just as a, a statement there, but yes, you're exactly right, Dusty. So, as I said, we're entering into the heart of our study on the covenant of works, uh, and we're going to, as I said, look at Genesis 2 and passages of Scripture outside, uh, and aiming to demonstrate that the whole counsel of Scripture clearly and definitively teaches that God made a covenant of works with Adam in the garden, uh, and that that covenant is still binding on all men at all times. So, the passage we read this morning, Genesis 2, verses 15 through 17, is the account in which the covenant was cut, established, ratified. One of the great questions that's asked by theologians in uh, looking at this covenant is, was Adam made in a covenant or was Adam made for a covenant? And the covenant being the covenant of works. In other words, was he created in the covenant of works already or was he created to be placed in that covenant? It's important, uh, and even though it feels like we're splitting hairs, um, there are some important uh, indications from answering that question. So remember in the sequence of events in the creation account, God created Adam out of the dust of the ground, and then he placed Adam in Eden. Adam was not created in Eden. Adam was created outside and then placed in the Garden of Eden. Eden is a region not specifically a name for the garden. It's the place where the garden was located. And Adam was created with the law written upon his heart, right? We've talked about how the moral law, the law of conscience written upon the heart of, uh, of Adam from the very beginning, the moment he was created. But tracing this line of thought, Adam is created out of the dust of the ground outside of Eden with the law written upon his heart. But then he is placed into Eden, and it is only after he's put in Eden that we see the account of the covenant being ratified. So the answer to this question, was Adam made in a covenant or made for a covenant? The progression of, of events reveals that Adam was created and established in Eden for a covenant. He was created uh, in such a way that there was a period of time, albeit very small, in which he was not under the covenant of works. His point of being created out of the dust of the ground and being taken into Eden was probably very immediate, but yet there was a very short period of time before God officially entered into covenant with him. We talked about how the law was written upon the heart of Adam, and our 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith teaches this. In chapter 4, verse uh, section 2, we read, after God had made all other creatures, he created man, male and female, with reasonable and immortal souls, 
having the law of God written in their hearts and power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject to change. And then another section, chapter 19, paragraph 1. God gave to Adam a, a law of universal obedience written in his heart. And those two uh, together summarize the teaching of Scripture that Adam was created with the law written upon his heart before being placed into the garden, before the covenant of works being officially ratified with him. So, Adam was created for a covenant, not in a covenant. Now, the definition of the covenant of works that I read, Richard Barcellus's definition, one of the important pieces of that, the very end of that definition, was that God made this covenant with Adam in order for man to better his estate. And the idea in this covenantal relationship was that God was providing mankind through Adam opportunity to gain a level of life that uh, was not theirs. And Nehemiah Cox, uh, one of the uh, editors of the 1689, comments upon this and expands it a little bit, writing that he, Adam, was capable of and made for a greater degree of happiness than he immediately enjoyed. This was set before him as the reward of his obedience by that covenant in which he was to walk with God. That Adam was created and then placed into that covenantal relationship, but that relationship had an end goal the bettering of not just Adam's estate, but all mankind. The Puritan William Bridge, uh, speaking of the connection of uh, the law within this covenant of works, writes that no sooner was man made, but he was under a law to be obedience unto God his maker. But when God said unto him in the day that thou eatest thereof, then God entered into covenant. So it's important recognizing the sequence of events that I talked about, the order in which the creation of Adam from the dust being placed in Eden, and then God entered into a covenantal relationship with him. So now as we move past that, those introductory matters, uh, we then enter into looking at this particular covenant according to the definition and the questions that we put together. The whole introduction of this class was to reach the point where we had these questions. And the questions, again, I'll just do a little bit of brief reminder on what we're talking about uh, so that uh, it's fresh in our minds. Uh, we're talking, uh, first of all, about uh, identifying the two parties of the covenant. And obviously, in this case, the parties are clear, and we'll look at that. Uh, we're also looking for the presence of a divinely imposed agreement. We're looking for the principles of a legal contract, looking for a suzerain lord figure, and then a vassal servant figure. We're also looking to see, do we see conditions mentioned? Do we see promised blessings? Do we see threatened curses? And then we begin looking at uh, distinctions within um, the covenant. Uh, is the situation of it external or internal? Is it primarily concerned with external obedience or internal obedience? Um, we'll identify specifically what the conditions are, and then are those conditions merit-based, one's own performance with no help, or are they gracious conditions? 
we'll ask the question, um, identifying the promised blessings and determine whether these blessings are temporal, physical, or spiritual, eternal. And then we'll also talk about whether the promises are realized, fully experienced within that covenant, or are they revealing a later subsequent covenant. We'll identify the uh, threatened curses and determine whether those curses are temporal in nature or eternal, spiritual. We'll look for the presence of an oath or swearing, and then we'll begin looking at the components of that covenant to see whether they are typical as types, shadows, or are they antitypical. For the uh, presence of the shedding of blood in the covenant, and we'll see if the timing of the shedding of blood is to identify the token within the covenant. Does anyone have any questions about the introductory material that we've gone through or the, the questions? Yes. That's a great question. Um, the bettering of his estate focused on really two things. And those are the things that um, Christ, in keeping the covenant of works, purchased where Adam failed. Um, the first thing was uh, the ability not to sin. Adam was created in a state in which he could sin. And when he, through that probationary period, uh, would keep the covenant of works, he would reach a point where um, he kept it, and he would no longer be able to sin. Okay, so mm -hmm. when, when, when that covenant was made, it was made, God, of course, does not see time or instant. Correct. In, in the sight of God, everything is present. So when he made that covenant, that covenant was foreseen to fall. Mm -hmm. So when you say it was, when you put a time on it like that, yeah. you said, say he was made for the covenant. In other words, the covenant made and then Adam was made. And I, I have a problem with it because he was made and he made perfect. Mm -hmm. He was perfect. And I and I understand yeah. because mm -hmm. God understood and I understand that. But it's the way you put it because when I when you say that that's how I'm looking at it. So he God covered man. I won't say this Adam was made with man because we are born sinners. Yes. So that covenant was for sinners, man, for mm -hmm. sinful man. It was made with man. Yes. So and, and, and sure, you know, correct me if I'm if I'm thinking wrong. Are, are you the covenant of works? Yes. I'm trying to find a way, a place to put that, with place that with what I'm seeing scripture, and to fit that in there because yes. I understand covenants and all of that. Although, well, I won't even get into that. <laughs> Let me respond to that. Um, I think you're asking an important question. Um, the words and the terminology I'm using are very important because this covenant was made with Adam, 
and then all mankind summed up in him representatively. But God established that covenant knowing man would fall, but all the pieces and parts of that covenant are set in motion for the one who was to come, who would keep it perfectly. So when, when Adam was created, he was created and then placed into a covenant that God at that moment, when he communicated with him in Genesis 2, 15 through 17, he established it. Adam then fell in not keeping it. Um, and the language that I'm using, Adam was brought into that covenant in order to gain something he didn't have because there were things, even in his perfect state, that he did not enjoy. You see, the work of Christ is not taking us back to that perfect state in the Garden of Eden. The work of Christ is earning something far greater than what Adam enjoyed. Adam, in his perfections, had the ability to die, had the ability to sin. Uh, he was not... Uh, in the heavenly places, in the presence of God, in the, in the way that um, uh, it will be in the age to come. And Adam didn't have that uh, inheritance that will be ours, an inheritance that Adam would have purchased if he had remained obedient, but Christ purchased it for us. So, yes, this covenant was set in motion when God knew that Adam would not keep it. That's what he ordained. He ordained the means unto the fall without being morally responsible for it in order that the covenant of redemption that he had agreed to with the son would be set in motion with the rest of the covenants of scripture building and more greatly revealing this coming covenant of grace and that Christ was born under the covenant of works, keeping it perfectly in every way where Adam failed and purchasing all that Adam was promised, that Adam failed to gain. You see, it's so important uh, in the terminology I'm using to recognize that everything is not just about Adam, that it's pointing ahead to the one who was to come. Um, I hope as, as we go through this definition and I begin to open up some more of the reasons why I'm using these terms, why theologians have uh, spoken in, in the ways that they have, that it begins to, I think, become more clear to you. And I'm sure you're not the only one that's not. Would you say that the covenant of works is set up in such a way that the logical internal coherence of it isn't completely fulfilled until we see the fulfillment of Christ? It's like the idea of we can't fully, it's not, it's, it's revealed there, but it's not realized. And then because of progressive revelation, we don't fully understand the covenant works until Christ reveals to us that truth in the covenant of works. I think there are aspects of it um, that if we were just to read the account in Genesis, we would completely miss. Um, later prophets like Hosea provide clear information about the fact that this truly was a covenant, even though the word covenant isn't found there. And then you get into Romans in chapter 5, and you begin to see the first Adam and the second Adam, and you begin to see that from the very beginning, the covenant of works was, was yes, about providing Adam and through him all mankind, that means to that higher level of life, eternal life. But in it, you're seeing um, types that are pointing and foreshadowing uh, the one who was to come, who would be born under that same law and would keep it. And so when we look at all that we gain in Christ, 
we gain a better understanding of what Adam would have gained, but lost through his disobedience. Mike. Hey, now, has sin been And that, that's the important thing. Covenant was made with Adam in a sinless state. But Adam still had not, even in that sinless state, achieved everything that he could enjoy. And that God set in motion the covenant of works to provide an avenue for Adam, and in Adam, all of us, to gain that. But the fall happened, which set in motion everything that God had already planned and ordained person of Jesus Christ. Does that answer your questions, Francine? Do you have some more specific things that you'd like me to, to speak to? that, Francine, and I think that that is a very important question to ask, um, because we need to think through these things within the framework of what we know the Bible teaches elsewhere. We know that, that God is holy and righteous, and yet sovereign over good and evil. Uh, in fact, scripture in the Old Testament, I think it's in Isaiah, uh, talks about that um, both good and evil are from God, and we have to reconcile that. How in the world is God's sovereign ordaining good and evil, and yet being holy and righteous and not morally responsible for it. And it comes back to the fact that he ordains and then uses, in the words of the, the confession, secondary causes. Um,
and we call into check for the for those that would refuse Calvinism or Reformation mm -hmm. or, or sound doctrine. I'll call it. We call into their trap when we try to explain things that God has not explained. And you know, we need to go as far as God has given us in His Word, and not any farther, mm -hmm. because we get into trouble that we don't have the mind. We can't even think in His terms, but we try to over explain things in order to to see what we're saying when it's perfectly valid to say i don't understand that either hmm. but here it is and i'm i'm truly one to say that but this is the word of god so whatever it is god knows what it is but this is what he's given me to do and to teach yes. and to believe and i stopped there yes i think I, real quick before i just want to mention one thing i think the danger is when people try to resolve tensions in scripture that scripture doesn't fully resolve like human responsibility and then the work of god kelly could i put a different slant on this yes we have thought that that would be uh, so it's welcome <laughs> well you don't know yet <laughs> <laughs> go ahead kelly That is the goal in every way of studying covenant theology. Um, we're studying the covenant of works because in it, we don't just get a, a dim glimpse of Christ and what he is going to do in his obedience. We, we see a very clear view. Um, the covenant of works, just like all of the other covenants of scripture, are pointing to Christ, revealing Christ, demonstrating what he would do, providing the foundation and the framework for what he would do. Uh, and so covenant theology is, is not really about all of these details and all the nuances. It, it's really fundamentally about us discovering how God has chosen to unveil his work of redemption through covenants, and it's all about Christ, 100% of it. Yes. Another way of, of saying that he fulfilled the law, the law to every jot and tittle, and we can be secure that he was sinless and he offered that to us. Is is this a different way of explaining this? Yes. In fact, um, understanding all of those things that you have just mentioned, all of that is built upon the framework of the law given binding in the covenant of works that in every way Christ's obedience to the covenant of works um, and born under the, the old covenant system is a means by which we see his perfect righteousness it's the means by which he actually has a perfect righteousness for us Chris well I think the essential principle that that you are expressing this morning um that you have been expressing this morning is ultimately a, a, a simple proposition, which is that 
Adam was while Adam was perfect, he was um, there were two things about his condition that were lesser than what we have in Christ. What and what Christ ultimately earned. One, he was able to fall, and two, he um, did not have a reward. And he had the generosity of God in, in many ways, but he did not have a, a promised eternal reward. And as I think we all understand, God, in creating man, did not owe man anything. Did not owe man the, the very fact of his creation could have made man his sovereignty um, for good or for ill as a, a, a vessel of grace or a vessel of pride. And, um, and it, that was God's prerogative. So God did not owe man any reward. If God had not covenanted with man, then all the good works in the universe would not have earned man anything or any right to demand anything from God. God had to had to covenant with man for that. God, there, it was because of God's promise that man had any opportunity to earn any reward, frankly, eternal or otherwise. So, in, in these promises to Adam, in his relationship with Adam, he gave Adam an opportunity to um, achieve the eternal reward and um, a, a promise that he would never fall. He was born without sin, but he was born fallible in the sense that he was able um, to fall. This, this um, points to Christ and simultaneously defeats the Arminian accusation um, against making God the author of sin, because God did not make this covenant with a sinner. Right. Sinners today are under this covenant because we are under Adam. We are part of Adam. That's why. Because Humanity has already violated that covenant under Adam, but it was not a covenant that was made with a sinner. It was made with a sinless man and his pro and by extension his progeny. It was made with a sinless man who had the capacity in himself to choose to satisfy that covenant. But he did not. He did not do so. That points us to the need for a better Adam who would do so. History uh, towards the need for someone to come and do what Adam was unable to do. And so the structure of redemptive history is God's provision of um, this person, this human would accomplish what Adam failed to do. So it's so important that Adam um, had the ability that, and the ability is not the same
ashamed as, as God didn't know what was going to happen. He right. knew what was going to happen because he knew that ultimately what would be revealed in Adam was that it had to be God who satisfied um, and that, that and, and he who would rescue a, a people. So um, God's purposes are, are established in this, um, but Adam had the ability, he had the capacity, the capability um, in himself to have attained this, but he did not, which points us to the need why it must be God who fulfills the law on our behalf. It must be God incarnate who is the, the uh, uh, human who satisfies the law and allows us to enter into a better covenant. Correct. Josh and then Mike. I guess, uh, would you say that since Adam is a type of Christ and he was the first human, that he, to some degree, because he was the chiefest of all of us in the most moral sense of the existence of the fall, that he had a sort of pseudo role of prophet, priest, and king in the garden. And even though he had every available means to fulfill those roles in the most you know, paradisic part of creation, he still failed to be the priest in keeping the garden pure. He failed to speak to his wife in obeying the word of the Lord. He failed to exercise dominion over the world because through his lineage, we have now wars and contentions. And so to answer even the question, you know, does this point us to, does, does this point us to Jesus as prophet, priest, and king? Yes, because Adam failed, and Christ now rules and reigns in heaven. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think that ties together the responsibility and role of Adam uh, in a, a very uh, summarized way. Um, and obviously in that we see all the ways in which he failed. And that magnifies what Christ did all the more. Mike? Um, one thing I want to just emphasize with my goodness is the fact that even though Adam failed and there was another covenant, I really forget that we all Absolutely. Yeah, when I first was studying covenant theology, um, so many of the books, you're in the deep end of the pool right away, and you're trying to wrap your mind around the beginning, trying to get that established, and it's difficult. And when I recognize that the covenant of works is that covenant that binds all men at all times to the perfect obedience uh, and obviously in Adam, we all enter this world already being breakers of that covenant because we're bearing the original sin guilt of Adam. Um, and yet God still required of man perfect obedience in a covenant that he had already broken, obedience that he could not perform, which was 
why the New Testament said that the law was a tutor to Christ. Yeah, I think that's where that's that that's where I, I think there's um, caution in order because it has to be clear that the covenant of works was not established with sinners. We're still under it as covenant breakers. Yes. But we're um, but God's not sort of establishing anew with each person as a blank slate um, and and demanding things that we're we're unable to do. That is is where um, where, where we have to yes. be careful. We we are already covenant um, uh, covenant breakers. Um, it's not a question of God making a covenant with people um, who yes. are unable to uh, perform it. The covenant of works was established ultimately in in, in the highest sense with with two men, Adam and Christ, both of whom um, are, um, it, it was established with Adam with an eye towards Christ um, because Adam was the one person with whom it was established for him and his progeny who was able to fulfill it. So there's no accusation that God established a covenant with him that he was unable to perform. And um, and his his progeny, we are covenant breakers with him. Mm -hmm. And um, um, and the only other person who has ever existed who was born into the world without sin, without that that status of being covenant breaker, was Jesus. Mm -hmm. And and so the, the covenant was established with 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 Adam and with an eye towards Christ. Yes. One quick comment, and then I'll take your, your question or comment. That's why we have all of the other stories and narratives of the Old Testament. Is this one going to be the second Adam? And you see all of them. You see they're good, but also they're sin. Even Noah, who in a sense was a, a, a type of a second Adam, starting the world again, and again, many things related to that, but yet you see his... His weakness and so everything through the, the covenants the old testament stories and the people it's pointing ahead is this new person the one they sin they're not is this one no they're not dusty i wasn't going to bring it up but then we keep hinting around it so original sin mm -hmm. how does christ get out of that because it's the descendants of adam Yes. Which, while he is also fully God, he is a descendant of Adam. Correct. So why why is it that his godness trumps sin rather than the sin trumping the godness? I have a theory about that, and it comes down to the fact Jesus didn't have a human father. Never been explained. I agree with you, and um, I think it's as, as 
Athanasius has answered that question on the incarnation. This, yeah. is, this is the incarnation. It's a crime that they don't. <laughs> no, that's that, that, that's absolutely true. But this is why the um, that there doesn't have to be a new theory to explain this. This is um, um, this is a, a an important question that has um, um, has been asked and discussed for uh, for many years. The and the answer is um, the virgin birth, and um, this is this is why the virgin birth. Is such an important doctrine because um, um, because Jesus um, did not have an earthly father. Um, the, the virgin birth is what allowed Christ to be born, not under the curse. Yes, he was born so, sinless. So yes. man or a curse? Is that yeah. what I'm hearing here? Yeah. We're the back end. Man is the one through whom the curse is passed down. Fundamentally. Um, so. Yes. So y'all sound so sparky, so I'm trying to get that. We're all learning together. You're in good company. I'm just new, you know, the Reformed Church. So what I'm getting at is God made the covenant works for Adam and his descendants. Because Adam, although perfect at the first, had the capability to sin and die. God owes man nothing. He made a way. So Adam's not given the eternal promise. Okay, so he and his descendants, they could, if he remained obedient to everybody else, there's debate over exactly what that would look like. Um, well, whether, right, <laughs> something along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Right, scripture doesn't give clarity. I Exactly. So, yeah, absolutely, you're right. So the reason why Francine, I've started with the beginning of the story rather than the end and reading the beginning through the light of what the end of the story is, is that I want us to read and study these things and try to understand what it was like to live during this time period and to see the progressive revelation of Christ. Obviously, we're not going to do that from the beginning all the way until Christ appears because I'm going to along the way in giving you the uh, covenant of works from Adam's perspective, stop and tell you everything in it that's pointing to Christ. It, there's two different ways of approaching this, by looking at it through the lens of Christ or looking at these covenants and seeing Christ through them. Um, Again, two different ways, um, and the way that I'm seeking to do it is very much in line with a, a biblical theology kind of approach, where you're, you're reading things as you are in Scripture, and then seeing Christ in them, and you keep reading, and you see the expansiveness. Uh, it's very similar to um, Johannes Voss in biblical theology, um, looking at things in this progressive way, and it's a profound way of reading and studying the Scriptures. You see... In a, in a sense, the kernel of the gospel revelation being revealed over time, expanding, getting broader and getting deeper and more specific. And you begin to see 
the presence and the knowledge of the gospel in the Old Testament expanding and increasing. And so that's why I've tried to do this study in this way. The goal being through it, every covenant, we see what it was and what it, uh, how it functioned, but we always look for Christ in the midst of that. And we're getting there um, once we get to uh, looking at um, the types and once we get into looking at Romans 5. So I, I wanted to begin with the beginning of the story and work through and look ahead and see Christ in light of understanding the beginning of the story. So I'm sorry if that was difficult. But do you remember when I when I talked and asked you if if the covenant if you see that as a contract and then when you show those eight definitions or eight parts of the contract and then I said, Oh, okay, then I'll understand the covenants better because you will apply those to the covenant. You have not. Because we're starting to do that today. Those the first thing was an agreement between man and God, mm -hmm. I believe. Yes. I don't see that. I don't see a covenant. The list of 11 questions. Right. Yeah. No, no, he's no, expanded no, the eight no. questions to oh. the 11 questions. Yeah. He's added the elements that, because I wrote those down, the eight of elements. Yes. Agreement, two right. parties, legal contract, condition, promise, yes. blessing, okay, grace. Yes. So those are the eight plus three more. These are the eight expanded a little bit more broadly because we need to make distinctions okay, so and understand. I, can those eight. I can't I couldn't find the eight. I got lost there. I didn't see all of those eight elements mm. in a contract. Sure. Because I tell you what I did see, number eight would explain all of them. Number eight was God's sovereign desire to gracious live. condescension. Mm -hmm. Condescension to live, to enter into or to deal with man. Mm -hmm. That explains all of it. But when you, when you define them like uh, agreement between God and man, God is, did not come to Abraham or Adam to give an agreement to make a contract. Absolutely. Or yeah. He did not. He thought he did that on his own graciously and mercifully, mm -hmm. entered into the end of the covenant and made that covenant itself without any agreement between two people. So in my mind, I'm you know way out here looking for some kind of presentation or some scripture to show where this what this is built on. Sure. So, you know, if I can just do away with those, I have a split cap mind when it comes to those things. If this is the way that it, the class is going to go, I'm looking for each one of those points. Hmm. And I can mentally check it off when I see it. But if I don't see it and I see so many things explained, but you haven't dealt with this, then I'm lost. Sure. So I understand. I'll do away sure. with those and you can go So this is exactly why there are there, there's um, um, there are different views about how granular you should really get in 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 defining this is what a covenant is versus other types of uh, promises or, or arrangements. And there are big disagreements uh, yep. about that. And um, and there there are there are people who uh, who prefer very uh, a detailed and granular definitions uh, like this and 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 I think kind of the thing that you're you're expressing is why some people prefer a, a much more uh, simple and, and straightforward uh, um, uh, or, or broader way of uh, of looking at what a covenant is and, and sort of looking at more at, at its function um, 
understand. I think that has a lot to do with it because when you say things, when I'm looking for that, mm-hmm. and if you don't show that, and then you have to continue to explain and explain and explain away, when you're getting into minutia that kind of wipes out the whole how we got here, you're getting into a, something that doesn't, you lost the whole covenant what God is doing, showing Christ and all of that. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the things that, you know, <coughs> it's, it's common sense, scripture, because we know anything about God, that's understood, that's a given. You don't have to spend a lot of time explaining that, but that's a given. But the things that you list, that's what I want to apply to what you said. The problem is we make it through one slide each week. Yes. <laughs> and so we can't get to the application so. of this we basically made it through two pages, and the whole rest of the, the, the lesson, which will be next week now, is going through all of these questions in detail, looking for all of these things. So I think what you're wanting, Francine, is what we're going to do. We just haven't done it yet. So I, all I ask of you is, let's do this and see if all of your questions and the, the difficulties are... So this list is a summary of what we observe in Scripture from all of the divine covenants. So there isn't a, a single verse that tells you this is what a covenant, right. And so we're, we're observing, and not every covenant in the passage demonstrates the presence of all of these things. But generally, this is what we see. If we look at every covenant, we're asking all of these questions so that we recognize what the text has and see questions perhaps that that text doesn't answer that the passages shed light on that we can bring in and uh, discover um, a broader, more scriptural uh, understanding of a, of a covenant. And so those eight things are summarized in, in all of these questions. Um, Don't correct me, if I'm, <laughs> correct me if I'm wrong, but would a dispensational person add more dispensations to the Old Testament than there are covenants. Yes. As in, it's important to go through this because if this does not fit that promise where they would call it a new dispensation, we can say, no, it does not fit with this. It is not a new covenant. It is not a new dispensation. That's how they get around. No, you're you're exactly right. And that's how they get around something that doesn't fit. Yes. Oh, well, just call it a different Yes. So, so this here that I've taught you this morning is a death blow to dispensationalism. If you have a covenant that's binding on all men at all times, dispensationalism falls apart. So, again, this, this covenant is important. We're going to spend time on it. Uh, we're, again, we're going to go through these questions, uh, and then we're going to also uh, look for... Uh, the presence of this covenant in our confession of faith to see what it says about it so that we recognize what our spiritual forefathers have believed and recognize that we're right in line. I'm going to be giving you quotes uh, from people in our own heritage, Nehemiah Cox and others, uh, people who uh, 
were some of the first to put all of the pieces of this puzzle together in ways that had not been done before. Um, so that we, we recognize that we're not, we're not talking about anything new here. We're talking about what has been believed, has been written about, um, and if you're wanting to know more, I can point you towards resources that can help you, uh, things that you can read that will take you back to the very beginning of the Calvinistic Baptist history uh, that will show you that what I'm teaching is exactly what they believed entirely. So, well, we are out of time. Um, so next week, we'll, we will continue on. Um, I know that some of these things are new for some, if not many of you. And what I'm asking for is Patience, yes. <laughs> Everything that you're wanting to see, questions that you have, I'm probably going to answer in the next 10 pages. Okay. Anything that's not, float them at me and I will answer them. And I will show you where, um, where I've answered it or where I'm going to answer it in the material ahead.